forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. Emmanuel Berry, and you are listening to Impact Exposure. Tonight on Exposure, we talk with some crew members from the film Thrive With Less. Amidst a season of excess, preview the Spartan Discords concert and talk with Ted Kindig about the ballad of Oscar Homeslice. And uh, we look at life without a calf pass. But first, according to the latest State of the State survey... Uh, support of gay marriage in Michigan is increasing. 56% support gay marriage versus only 48% two years ago. But this doesn't mean laws are directly following suit. Although several states now approve same-sex marriage, some argue that a constitutional resolution is not necessarily the route to marriage equality. Professor May Kirkendall is a co-director of the E-Marriage Project, which looks to provide marriage equity through granting states the right to exercise their authority uh, and apply their marriage laws to couples who live outside of their state. Kirkendall is a professor of law at MSU and a visiting prof this semester, or this fall, at the University of Michigan. Uh, Welcome to Impact Exposure. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to have you and a good topic to talk about. so before we delve into the the legal lay of uh, of gay marriage rights, let's talk a little bit about the, this social shift. Um, we've seen it in Michigan in the survey. Um, it also seems to be a national trend. Um, why is there this? Why do you think there's this attitude shift? Well, I um, think that a generational change is cited uh, by quite a few people as one of the big shifts. Uh, in terms of commentary about Obama's recent win, there's a sense that the demographics of the nation are changing in terms of, you know, race and also in terms of age. So older people tend to remain uh, reluctant or, you know, just so surprised by the idea that they can't support it. But as we uh, replace generations, it's just becoming apparently uh, something that's much more readily accepted. So do you think these these shifts have um, influenced ballot measures that passed? Uh, this November, we had Maine, Maryland, and Washington, D.C. Other states have already passed things. Do you see this as a trend that's going to continue, or is is this all the opinions we're going to change? Are we, are we there yet? Well, first, let me say it was Washington State. Oh, that, sorry. Uh, well, that's okay. There were two um, situations where the state passed, the state legislature enacted marriage, but then they put it on the ballot either because an initiative required them to or because that just seemed like uh, something wise to do. And in Washington State and Maryland, the um, voters, you know, said, yes, we'll keep gay marriage. And in Maine, after having defeated it a couple of years ago, uh, the forces who favor gay marriage brought it back and they voted for it this time. So there's clearly a, a change because one of the things that's been recited for years uh, by the opponents of gay marriage is that any time it's put to the voters, they reject it. So there's been this strong sense that the people have to be the final say on the definition of marriage, and uh, we're now encountering the fact that the people are beginning to say yes. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you say, will this continue? I think that nationally figures, you know, the, our, our proud um, son, uh, Nate Silver, has material that he's been posting in the New York Times over, over uh, the last couple of years about the change in opinion. And so he's shown an accelerating change, especially at the national level, in terms of support. And uh, so, you know, you see different figures, but 
uh, it's very strong nationally that suddenly it's okay. At the same time, in um, North Carolina, there was an initiative last spring, and of course the voters in North Carolina heavily uh, said no, and it's a very harsh anti-gay marriage law. So my answer would be that I think there's a national trend toward a lot of support, but, uh, you know, the red state-blue state phenomenon, mm-hmm. there's still many states where the opinion, as Nate Silver projects it, uh, on, uh, in 2011 he had a projection. So he's got, he, you go down his projection and you gradually get into states where the odds get to be almost, you know, non-existent for their uh, voting against, um, well, voting against a, a, a proposal to ban gay marriage. So in other words, they're going to keep voting for proposals to ban gay marriage if they're put before them. And then another factor, putting aside public opinion, is a lot of these states have constitutionalized bans on same-sex marriage. So it's harder to change the law in states like that. You can't, the legislature can't just decide that public opinion has shifted. Somebody has to be willing to put up the money to organize an initiative the way we have in Michigan, uh, you know, an initiative process to put it before the people to, um, uh, you know, to say, yes, we want gay marriage. Mm-hmm. So you could say that's not going to happen in Mississippi anytime soon. Yeah. <laughs> so now your your proposal with the e-marriage project kind of gets around um, this state-by-state thing by allowing people to uh, essentially saying that other states can't void other um, states' same-sex well, marriage laws. Is that correct? Well, there's or? sort of like two steps there. The first mm-hmm. step is that when we first wrote about this, we said states have the authority, they have the sovereign power to offer their marriage law uh, to people who are not present in the state. That does not say whether the marriage has to be recognized by other states, but it says that uh, people can take whatever they feel is valuable to them from that state's marriage law and do it without traveling to the state. So uh, whatever people get out of traveling to a state, like Vermont and getting married and then returning to Mississippi, we said they might get even more out of it if they could um, do it while they're in Mississippi, go by Skype with, say, a minister in Vermont, and have a real ceremony at home. And then part of our idea was, if people in Mississippi see that, maybe it'll make them mad, but maybe they'll also begin to think, well, you know, it really is happening. Uh, it's, real, it's real. So whatever you would get out of having a, a distance marriage is no different than what you would get out of having a marriage where you go to a place. So if your marriage is recognized in Mississippi, then it would be recognized however you did it in terms of the ceremony. Mm-hmm. So we're saying there's no magic to physical presence, and states have the authority to project their marriage law. But then the treatment of that marriage law by states that uh, apply their, lo- their public policy uh, to what they recognize in terms of marriages would come into play. But our, our thesis is that over time, if you do this, the, nor- the sense that it's a normal thing would begin to be um, more 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 visible to people, and uh, maybe they would gradually yield on their insistence that there's no such thing as gay marriage. So it it, it does it still comes down to kind of like a social acceptance of it by, by introducing and getting people used to. Yeah, the I idea. would say this is my empirical thesis about what it takes to gradually change people's views. 
so the the nor that what's said about um you know the, the old saw that people say a lot is that when friends and family come out or gay people are more visible uh people's opinions change and you know person to person changes the opinion that's what they did in Maine after losing the uh, election 2 years ago or th- however many years ago it was they then figured out that they had to really mobilize and go door to door and talk person to person to make people understand how important it was and who the people were who wanted to be married and that worked it shifted the opinion at the same time of course shift opinions been shifting generally but the idea is that there are a lot of states that tend to cause um, gay people to be somewhat less visible mm-hmm. and are more able to just be at a state in public opinion uh, of 20 years ago for some other parts of the country where they're just shocked at the very idea. So um, part of the idea of e-marriage is that it can benefit the couples because if they enjoy it, um, then it's worth something. And then it could benefit the state in, uh, by helping to educate the climate of opinion somewhat. There was an example of it. A, a couple acted on our idea and got married in Texas by Skype from D.C., a male couple. And uh, they got a lot of publicity, and there was a lot of negative reaction in Texas. And then eventually D.C. said, this marriage didn't work because we can't permit that. Uh, But um, it did affect public opinion in certain respects in Texas, because at first the Dallas Morning News said, we will not uh, print a wedding announcement for you, even though it's paid. We, We will only print it in civil unions. And so they threatened to litigate. And after a couple of months, they, suddenly the Dallas Morning News gave way, and now they print same-sex wedding announcements. They so, printed theirs as the first one they printed, I believe. So there, you are seeing some kind of change with this idea and so socially. Um, looking at most people, when, when they think about gay marriage, they think it's going to come down to you know um, either a, a constitutional amendment via the Supreme Court um, or... Uh, some some type of ruling from the right. court. Um, why do you do you think this approach works? Is that where the solution is going to come from? Um, well, the idea that we that we had about um, making marriage more accessible by allowing states to beam it out from their state led to questions about okay, so what do states get out of saying they don't recognize a gay marriage? So in some ways, they're trying to keep it totally out of the state. All right, so if we show that you can't keep it out in terms of a public ceremony that actually has some legal standing, even though maybe not in your state, uh, we show them that, then maybe they would start thinking, well, this is getting a little ridiculous because we're trying to deny what's all around us, what's present, what's here, what's obviously real. So the question is, what do they get out of saying we don't recognize these marriages? Mm -hmm. And so that led me to start thinking, okay, what is the state interest now in the 21st century and saying they don't recognize same-sex marriage. And what I've done is to write another article that's about to be published that says, as a matter of federalism, it's time to abandon the idea that states have some big policy interest in refusing to recognize marriage, same-sex marriage, when, you know, the estimate is always rolling, but perhaps a third of the population now is living in states in the United States that recognize, that create and authorize same-sex marriage. You know, that figure could be high because I don't keep going back to the drawing board to calculate it. And you've got California, which sort of had it, it's in abeyance whether they have it or not. There's, the Ninth Circuit has held that the um, 
the um, attempt of the people of California to ban it was unconstitutional, but they um, didn't have their ruling go into effect immediately. So California, you know, you could count it or not count it, depending on how you want to. But you're looking at a lot of the population of the United States that has same-sex marriage. So what interest does another state in the United States have in the 21st century to say this marriage doesn't exist? Uh, one, uh, their origin of the idea of not recognizing marriages has to do with, um, you know, underage marriages, real public policy concerns about harm to the individuals involved in the marriage, mm-hmm. uh, perhaps getting married too soon after a divorce, trying to evade a waiting period in your state. Or, unfortunately, one of the big examples of the idea that states have a public policy interest in not recognizing marriage is the anti-miscegenation laws of the 19th century, mm-hmm. which were held unconstitutional in, uh, in the 60s in the United, by the Supreme Court. So there's a huge amount of old law that uh, became more prominent once same-sex marriage came on the scene, kind of got revived because with miscegenation law being gone and with um, less concern in some ways about underage marriage, because, uh, you know, at another time, the big fear was that girls would be taken somewhere to marry somebody and the marriage would be consummated and then the deed is done. So they really wanted to have strong rules uh, not recognizing marriages of underage girls. But uh, in our looser climate of today, that's not quite the concern it once was about you know loss of um, their virtue. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the reasons that built up the idea of a public policy interest for states not to recognize marriage, I argue, have lost a lot of their um, rationale. Yeah, their ground. There's and not they have very little it. application, in my mind, to same-sex marriage because nobody is being uh, harmed. I mean, if you're very religious, maybe you think that a participant in same-sex marriage is being harmed. But um, I don't think under civil law that that would be something that could be recognized as a harm. So the notion that it disrupts the marriage law, oh, the other thing that we don't recognize, and it's still true, is polygamous marriages. And that's actually one of the key origins of the idea that states have a policy interest in not recognizing a marriage from another jurisdiction. But the idea of that used to be strongly that the Western world didn't have polygamy. And so it was definitely an international norm that we're not going to recognize marriages from a system that is so different than ours that our law really can't deal with the incidence of the marriage. Mm-hmm. Well, Professor Kirkendall, I'd like to thank you so much for taking the time to um, come and talk about this issue today. Very good. Well, thank you. You have a good one. Okay, bye. You're listening to Impact Exposure. At the football game, Jim shows the telltale signs of being wasted. He starts flexing for the camera. He refers to his muscles as gunboats. He screams, how's this for a halftime show? Jim streaks the field. It's easy to tell if you've had way too many to drive. But what if you've had just one too many to drive? Never underestimate just a few. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, the Ad Council, and this station. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. 
Sunday nights, check out Sit or Spin from 8 to 10 p.m., where you can voice your opinion on what new music we play here on The Impact. Only on Impact Prime Time. Gentlemen, want to hear our specials? Sure. First, we have the seafood special. It's been sitting around here for a week. We're known around these parts for our food poisoning. Wouldn't it be great if you could be warned of life's risks? If you have diabetes, you can. It's called A1C, a simple blood test that can help measure your risk of complications such as heart attack. To find out more, go to www.diabetesa1c.org. Brought to you by the American Diabetes Association, Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation International, and the Ad Council. Now back to Impact Exposure. Emmanuel Berry, and you are listening to Impact Exposure. Impact reporter Lauren Godleski takes a look next at life without a calf pass on campus. Hi, can I please have oil? And then I'll also have spinach and broccoli and tomatoes and onions and cheese. Anything else? That's it, please. These are the sounds of life without a meal plan. Customizing orders without the cooking. But as students get older and move off campus, they have to face life without a meal plan. Sophomore Victoria Tompkinson, communication major, was a resident of Brody last year with the luxury of easy access to one of the best calves on campus. Now in her apartment. It's a lot different. I definitely miss the calves a lot. And going from having old Brody to just having to cook for myself kind of sucks. Victoria admits that cooking isn't exactly her specialty. I'm actually a really terrible cook. And I have had a lot of catastrophes cooking. I don't know. I've gotten better at it, but it's I'm definitely not as good as I should be. <laughs> One time I set up the fire alarms and like smoked up the whole apartment building. Victoria said she naturally sticks to the simple things like making salad, noodles, or Easy Mac. You have to schedule the time out of your day, and you have to spend time like thinking about what you want to eat instead of just going to the calf. But it also, like we would get sidetracked at the calf and sit there for a while, so that's also been a little bit of a benefit. For special education major Melissa Smith, life without a meal plan can get a little more expensive. It consists of easier meals, and they're not as home-cooked. They're not as nice, I guess. And I have to buy my lactate because I'm lactose intolerant, so it's way more expensive on my own instead of having just my meal plan. But when it comes to grocery shopping, pricing typically decreases. Uh, I go with my roommates, and we split it four ways. It's easier just because I'm not buying everything individually, so it's cheaper. The thing that makes her individual price add up? I just buy the lactate. Although he enjoyed learning to cook for himself in the beginning of the semester, about five weeks in, sophomore Tyler Porritt, supply chain management major, decided to get a partial meal plan, granting him 70 passes. There's been a couple times where I want to go like more than two or three times a week to the calf, but I need to ration it out so I have it for the rest of the year. Tyler said his top three meals consist of PB&J, grilled cheese, and frozen chicken. My biggest disadvantage was I was never able to get like a fresh like salad or anything like that because I don't want to buy that stuff. That was mostly the main reason, just so I could get salads. And then it's kind of nice. I can just go there. I can bring my school supplies and study for an hour and eat during that whole time. When it comes to living on your own, it's nice to have the freedom to cook your own meals. But students still find themselves missing the easy access of the calf. Victoria relates. I think it's a good experience to have to cook for yourself and grocery shop for yourself and stuff, but it's also a really nice luxury to have the calf. For Impact Exposure, I'm Lauren Gutleski. You're listening to Impact Exposure.
Smoking helpline. Yes, I need to start smoking right away. Excuse me? I need to start smoking. Well, actually, it's the Stop Smoking Helpline. The people in the apartment next to mine smoke three packs a day, and it drives me crazy. So I'm thinking four packs will do it. I think you want MySmokeFreeApartment.org. It gives you the information you need to work toward a smoke-free apartment building. A smoke-free building? Without all that smoking? Uh, yeah, that's right. Make your apartment smoke-free without making a stink. MySmokeFreeApartment.org. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Wednesday nights from 8 until midnight, it's the Impact's Accidental Blues, your source for great blues music, news, and concert information. Only on Impact Primetime. Hola, my name is Esperanza. After a tragic incident, I was forced from a life of riches in Mexico to a life of poverty in the United States. My mother has become ill and we have become separated from our family. Now I must work for both of us to try to bring the rest of our family together. My name is Esperanza and I am trying to survive. Explore new worlds. Read my story in the novel Esperanza Rising by Pam Muñoz Ryan. For other great book ideas, visit your local library or log on to literacy.gov. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Now back to Impact Exposure. Emmanuel Berry, Impact Exposure. Feature an animal has a character called Home Slice, includes a director cameo and hairbrushing. These are just some of the parameters set by the AV Club's Parameter Short Film Contest. Out of 15 or so different guidelines, only four had to be followed, but our guest today, Ted Kindig, decided to follow all 15 guidelines uh, in a movie that helped him place in the finals uh, for this competition. So, Ted, welcome to Exposure. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. Uh, I have to say, I've watched your video. <laughs> it is uh, hilarious, uh, whimsical, and I don't, I don't know. It's a strange little creation. Yeah. Uh, so, so how did this come about? How did the the ballad? It's titled the, the Ballad of Oscar Holmes. <laughs> how did this come about? Yeah. Um, well, I I read the the site, the AV Club. Uh, pretty regularly, and I saw a little blurb that they were starting a short film competition based on all these weird, specific rules. And I looked over the list of rules, and I thought, yeah, I could, I could do something with this. And so, I put it together, and and now it's in the top five. Which is pretty cool. Yeah. So let's talk about some of these rules and parameters um, that you had to incorporate because they are really, really random. Yeah. Uh, so we have. Um, it has to be in color. Uh, original music is one. Um, pop bottle sounds. Character plays a video. <laughs> like they're just kind of on and on. Were there any of of these parameters that were difficult for you to try and, and incorporate into the piece? Um. Well, it my my story here is surreal enough that I could sort of jump <laughs> from one weird thing to the next. Uh, the main one that. I sort of had to crack before it came together is there's one that says if any of your characters are astronauts then all characters must be astronauts and I wasn't <laughs> sure what direction I wanted to take that in at the beginning um but you got uh, around it <laughs> no yeah exactly as as soon as I figured out a plan for that the rest of it all just sort of fell into place so let's let's talk a little bit about the plot of this piece um we won't give away the ending or anything like that <laughs> the yeah. big surprise but so you have a character. I don't even know if the character... I don't believe he has a name. doesn't even have a name. He doesn't no. have a name. Just a squiggle. And uh, he's going to get a dishwashing job. He's trying, yeah. He's trying to. And then he meets 
Oscar Holmes. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah. Yep. He is. Um, while he's looking for a job, he's discouraged. Um, he had a bad experience at uh, Spacey Camp when he was a kid, <laughs> and he sort of never recovered from that. But then a, uh, a magical astronaut appears to him. His name is Oscar Holmeslice, and he sort of cheers him up with a song and helps him to believe in himself. And so, and so there it is. Yeah. Uh, so in in writing and, and having to follow all fifteen parameters because you made that decision, did you find it easier to write your plot around having those having more parameters, or was it more difficult for you to write the story? Um. Well, I I really respond to rigid structure like that. I, I think there's a lot of opportunity to be creative within set rules. I think obviously there there's are a little over a hundred submissions in this contest and they're all different, but they're all based around these crazy rules and I think it's I don't know, for me it's it's easier to have a goal like, all right, now it's the hairbrush, now it's the astronaut and go sort of systematically one by one and see what I come up with with that. So um so for this film what did you uh, you wrote the film? What else did you do? Did you do the voicing? Did you do animation? Is it is yeah. it all a Ted Kinding production? Yeah, I did every uh, everything. Um, it's, <laughs> so you voiced you voiced Homeslice. I did. Yep. <laughs> I kind of don't believe that. But. No, it's, yeah. Well, I he has a sort of deep gravelly voice. That's not like my natural speaking voice at all. It's it's digitally moved down a couple steps. So. I put on sort of like this silly can, can rock and roll. Can you do it for us now? No, I can't because <laughs> it's 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 a it really sounds nothing like it when I, tr- I I'm trying to do like a modern rock like Pearl Jam voice or something. But then <laughs> when I pitch it down three steps, it, it is changes uh, a lot. Exactly. So <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, and where did you learn pick up these skills? Animation um, shooting. Um. Well, I. A lot of it goes back to high school, honestly. I, I had a, a video production class with Mr. Richter over at Lansing Eastern in the area here, and that's where I got started making little short animations. And since then, I studied film here at Michigan State, and yeah. Uh, so your your main character has kind of this... Um terrible experience of space camp or obsession is any of this autobiographical here (laughs) not so much the space camp thing a lot of the anxiety over finding a job thing uh is almost embarrassingly autobiographical there is sort of there's this process when you're not getting jobs where you sort of start to hate yourself a little bit and then you have to pick yourself up and say yeah i'm a super cool magical astronaut and then you uh when you don't get the job, you still just go on delusionally believing in yourself. So that's <laughs> you have very to. much. Yeah, <laughs> that's what the that's what it's about. Uh, so you're in the top five at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, what's next? What, yeah, what are the next steps competition wise? Uh, well, a week from Friday, I'll be down in Chicago for the award ceremony. Uh, they're going to put me up, and they're going to screen the top five, and from there they'll announce. The uh, the grand prize winner. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. Yeah. Uh, so if if people want to check out this film, um, where can they find it online? Um, well, it's on 
It's at vimeo.com slash Ted Kindig. That's V-I-M-E-O. Uh, it's on YouTube. It's actually on The Onion's YouTube. Uh, the site that sponsored this, the AV Club, is an offshoot of The Onion, and so they did some cross-promotion. So if you go to The Onion's YouTube channel, you can track it down on there. All right. Well, good. best of luck to you. Um, like I said, I thoroughly enjoyed the film. I think it's hilarious. Uh, and, yeah, good luck in Chicago. Well, thank you very much, and thanks for having me. Yep, no problem. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Emmanuel Berry, and you are listening to Exposure. The extremes of American culture's excess were highly on display this weekend with the madness of holiday shopping. But do we really need all this stuff? That's the question some MSU students set out to answer. Earlier this year, a group of students stopped living an excessive lifestyle and filmed the experience. The film project is called Thrive With Less, and today I spoke with Colin Marshall and Josh Michaels about the film and living a minimalist life. This is Josh. So Thrive With Less began as a capstone documentary course. Uh, there were six of us in the Com Arts department in the documentary track. And so the final um, course in that track is to produce a documentary over the course of a whole semester. So you have really um, a good amount of time to focus in on one topic, work with the crew. We had six people in our crew um, and really like dive in um, more so than like the three week or the month long project that is typically had in that um, field. And so we um, all pitched an idea, and I brought the idea of what would it look like to live minimally in what we would argue is an excess-driven culture. Um, and so, and the other five people really just latched onto it. Um, everyone just kind of took ownership of that idea, and we just kind of dove in and started to make the film. Yeah, the, the original intent was to find a family that lives minimally and compare them to a family that uh, we defined as excess. Mm-hmm. Um, and we started to kind of take on this minimal lifestyle through the course of production because we wanted to understand the topic as best we could. And so we really started to have um, very strong feelings and attachment toward these um, parameters that we set for ourselves to adopt a minimal lifestyle. And so we then decided to turn the cameras on ourselves and that became the documentary. And instead of producing a 20-minute film, it became an hour-long feature. What was that like, just making you know that decision to go from both you know documentary to you know to, to be the one on camera? It was strange. Uh, <laughs> definitely the hardest film project I've ever, I've ever done because you know how it's kind of this ego battle. Like, you know, how much do I show of myself, or does that aid the story, or does that aid my presence, or you know, it's kind of this push and pull sort of thing but uh, ultimately I think it was cool because uh, we were able to shape the story exactly how we wanted mm-hmm. um, not to say that it was fabricated by any means but we really got to pick out exactly the elements that we wanted to include you know if someone was going through a challenge we were ready at all times with cameras because we were the filmmakers yeah and I I feel like that's one of the hardest parts of doing documentary films is something you're not always you can't always be there so there's mm-hmm. there's stuff you miss so it's kind of awesome that you had that type of control in this situation. Mm-hmm. Uh so it, as part of uh the the documentary film you guys created these challenges for yourself essentially to live a more minimalist lifestyle. Uh so what were these challenges uh, and how did you face them what were some of the struggles that you guys had with them? Um, well, the challenges, we set up six of them. Uh, they included 
really six, six central areas of our lives. So we had food, transportation, shelter, community, materialism, and our passions. Um, for food, we decided we were only going to uh, eat what was in our pantries. We would never go out to eat. If we wanted to get lunch with someone, that we would invite them to our house um, kind of to uh, you know, avoid spending where we didn't have to and also preventing food from going bad that we may have purchased from the store. Um, transportation, we never rode our bikes uh, outside of a two-mile radius. Um, Drove our cars within. Uh, or, excuse me, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so we were always riding our bikes, mostly around campus and running other errands. I always did grocery shopping on my bike. Um, shelter, we quarantined off a portion of our living space to kind of show that everyone is capable with living with less space. You know, you don't have to occupy as much as you own. Um, and materialism, we decreased our wardrobes, so we decided that we only needed four shirts and one pair of pants for the whole month, so that's all we wore. Um, and then... Yes, we did wash them. <laughs> good. That's a very good, good question, so I'll prevent you have to ask it. We did wash our clothes. We're not smelly people. <laughs> you don't have to be filming. smelly if you're minimal. <laughs> right. right. Um, and then uh, building community, and we would have these community dinners every Wednesday, so everyone brought a potluck meal from their pantry, and we all just shared a meal amongst friends because... It's too often that we sit at home and eat a meal on our own. Um, and the last one was following our passions, you know, pursuing the things that are fulfilling and satisfying rather than the obligations that we have to do but don't necessarily enjoy. Mm-hmm. So, Josh, for you, what was the hardest thing to kind of – what was the hardest challenge for you, the hardest thing to give up or, or do less? Um, I think uh, well, just the whole idea of the thrive with less is very much two parts. And I think the first week – um, it comes from the film, but like, the first week for us was kind of like setting up what is this less. Uh, we have these six challenges, like let's cut a bunch out of it. And then after week, done, week one was done, it was like, okay, we got the with less, now what's the thrive? Um, which is like a huge question to try and answer in a film, a huge question to try and answer in life in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think just looking at that and like seeing this community that the six of us had built um, and really focusing in on that is my as like my biggest challenge of like really pursue and be intentional with this community of like, like text them when I know they're having a bad day, like pursue time with them, not just when we have planned dinners and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, and so really, um, like stepping out of my comfort zone with community, like the six of us, we're all from very different walks of life. Um, but this like one, um, purpose really brought us all together and we all really like took ownership and united behind it. Um, so that was a cool thing to do. So I think that was like the challenge that, I saw more of um, than giving things up. Right. And so like both within the six of us, but then also like pursue community with my other roommates um, Mm -hmm. or with like classmates in school. Like why um, would I only be friends with like the six of these people? Because we're doing the same thing. Like I can be just as good a friend with the person I sit next to in a class. So. And Colin, what about you? Was there anything in particular that did, did the minimalist lifestyle bug you at all? Was it difficult for you? Um, Originally, like when we first started doing it, it was it felt really liberating. I felt like I got rid of a ton of things that um, were kind of distracting or other stressors in my life. Um, it felt really kind of stripped down, and I felt kind of full of life because I didn't have these other things sort of weighing me down. Um, but I also decided to uh, add another challenge to my list to eat raw food for the whole month, and that was an extremely tough thing to do. Um, I just, I love pizza so much. I, just, <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't stay away from pizza. <laughs> so, 
So living raw food, so nothing can be cooked at all. Right, yeah, that's the idea. And it's just kind of the optimal nutritional diet. Um, But that's tough to do when you eat nothing but bread and salt and, you know, otherwise. Yeah. So So let's talk kind of in retrospect. You guys have finished this project. You finished kind of officially living the minimalist lifestyle. Um, Are there any things that you guys have continued to in your life now that you currently kind of do that? you wouldn't have done before so do you live more minimalistly i guess still in sure some ways? yeah i do absolutely uh the one thing that really stuck with me um is the wardrobe challenge i still to this day probably only have you know between six to eight shirts and only a few pairs of pants that i wear regularly um i'm actually uh in the process of donating like over 50 articles to volunteers of america just because i don't want it taking up space and you know distracting me from other things so um, that stuck with me, but really just kind of the mindset of everyday decision-making. Do I need this? Is mm-hmm. this going to be satisfying long-term or just for the immediate moment? Um, and that's kind of in the forefront of my mind every time I make any kind of consumption decision. What about for you, Josh? Um, I think, again, just really focusing in on that community aspect and pursuing that. Um, <clears throat> but another thing that um, has really stuck out to me, uh, Matt Raddick, one of our other members, has talked about this a lot um, after the film and the whole process. Um, one of the goals we had was limit our social media or cut it out completely, um, or our use of it. And so, and his coming back into it after the challenges, he was saying he um, will use social media, but he has like an allotted time for it. And so, in all your aspects, in all your areas of life, really being intentional and present in what you're doing. So, like if you're out to lunch with someone, like you don't check your phone, you don't like you. Like kind of not forget about time, but like you're not worrying about the time or worrying about it too loose. You're just having lunch with them. So at the same time, like you do social media and you get all your work done in like in half an hour or something. And so really being intentional and um, present wherever you are in whatever you're doing. So I think that's been a huge takeaway for me. So through your filming, do you think that this kind of minimalist lifestyle is something that people can easily do? Like, what are some simple things that, that people could do without feeling like, you know, they're giving up everything as a way, as a way to start? Um, anyone who can speak to this? Yeah, I think that uh, this is something that really anyone can do. Um, but I think it's important that if someone decides that they want to take on a challenge, that they are prepared for it. Um, we, I think, had a lot of success through this. You know, we learned a lot because we were ready to take on the challenges and expose ourselves and become vulnerable. Um, and I think that is a really important mindset for someone attempting to, you know, minimalize or simplify. Um, but yes, I think absolutely there's plenty of room for people to say, you know, I don't need this Subway sandwich or I don't need to buy this Black Friday sale coat or whatever it is. You know, it's the idea of instant gratification versus lasting joy. Now, the, yeah, Black Friday, Christmas, it is it is this time of excess kind of in, in our culture. Um Are the holidays kind of different to you? Do you view them differently now after participating in the project in the film um, compared to last year when you hadn't gone through this experience? Um, I think um, a lot of it is similar feelings. I had a lot of these um, more minimal ideas um, coming into the film. Um, But definitely, like, having the group of us go through this together and now seeing the holidays again, it's just, like, kind of, like, at the front of my mind again, I'm like, wow, this is a huge contrast between the way um, we've said, like, you could live more minimally and then the way that our society is pushing people to live and, like, just polar opposites and, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I 
stores are opening earlier and earlier every year. Like I know that a lot of Walmarts and Best Buys and Targets open the night of Thanksgiving. And it's, it seems so silly to me to tell someone, you know, you're going to move away from your family gathering so that you can sit outside on the concrete in the cold by yourself to save $50 on a TV that's going to further drive your family apart because there's going to be a TV in every room, you know, or whatever it is. Um, I just, I, I think the the whole idea is a bit strange. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, uh, Jay Schaefer in our film talked about this, like, one big consumption machine that, like, is our society and how we'll, like, build a big house and then we have to have a, um, big furniture to go in there, so we need a big car to get the big furniture, so we have to go to the big store to get the big furniture. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like this endless cycle that once you start down it, it can become very addicting and just very um, entrapping. And so I think a lot of people like want to get out, or they do see the ridiculousness of Thanksgiving followed by the biggest shopping day of the year. Like, where's thanks and where's shopping in unison? And so um, the idea of like this consumption machine that like has kind of engulfed a lot of people. Um, is like a dangerous spot to be in. So for this holiday season, do you have, um, I guess, a piece of advice or something for people to keep in mind, you know, as they're, you know, buying these extravagant gifts and, and that sort of thing? Is there something you'd want them to take with with them or think about as, as they're doing this? Um, sure. I mean, what comes to mind for me is, you know, the best gifts are the ones that are sentimental. Those are the ones you're going to keep for the rest of your life or, and have on your desk or your wall or whatever. Um you know, that video game isn't going to stay with you after you're done playing it. But that, you know, if someone writes you a letter, you're going to keep that forever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked to a professor at Butler University um, in the filming process, um, and she's a professor of happiness, essentially. She's a <laughs> great woman and so happy and friendly. Um, but she was, like, she's done a ton of research in the area, and she was saying, um, what money we do have is better spent on experiences rather than things, which I think is totally true. Like, if you want um, to give some, someone something, like, say you're going to take them out for coffee or something and, mm-hmm. like, really spend time with them. You're Like, yeah, you'll buy their coffee and a muffin for, what, like, eight bucks, <laughs> which is cheaper than a $50 sweater. You'll have, like, three hours to talk, really get to know them um, or, like, bring a game, play together. And, like, that's going to be way more memorable than a sweater that gets put on their shelf and donated or given away mm-hmm. a few months later. So that's what I would say. So uh, where are you guys currently at with your film? Uh, what's, what's the deal? So right now we're in kind of the distribution phase. Um, we've actually pitched our film to every PBS station in the state, and a lot of them have really expressed some strong interest in showing our film. Um, and so right now there, there's a few steps that need to happen before we can submit our film. We need to pay for um, a final audio mix. We need to pay for a final color correction. Uh, we need to pay for some closed captioning fees. And uh, unfortunately, we, we simply don't have deep wallets to do this. So we have a Kickstarter campaign that's live right now, actually until the end of the month, which is Thursday night at midnight. Friday night. Um, Friday night, excuse me. Um, so we're still looking for some more funds um, to, to help back our project. And if if, if you're interested yeah, in Yeah, if people wanted to to look and check this out, where would they go? Uh they can go to thrivewithless.com. There's a there's a direct link to our Kickstarter campaign directly from that website. Yeah. Um and then we're also um <clears throat> pursuing screenings. We just uh screened at the East Lansing Film Fest 
uh, about a week and a half ago, um, which was a great experience. And then we also, on that same website, have a place where if someone wants to host a screening in their hometown, hometown whether it's a house screening or a school or a community center, um, we have a way for them to contact us and set up a screening, set up us coming to visit, leading a discussion, or just Skyping in with them to talk about stuff. Um, so we're very much in the process of we've made the film, finished the film, and now we just want to get it out there. We want to spread this message um, mainly with the intent of starting a conversation about, we, uh, about all this. About I think it's a very broad topic. People can come at it from any angle they want to. Um, mm-hmm. Someone can pick one aspect of it, and like we can talk about that. They, if they just have a beef with transportation in the U.S., like that's one area that we can mm-hmm. talk about. Um, and so it's a very accessible... We've seen it to be a very accessible topic, and so we just want to continue that conversation. Well, Josh and Colin, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you so much. So, You're listening to Impact Exposure. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Tuesday nights from 8 until midnight, the Impact's progressive torch and twang brings you the best in alternative country and grassroots music. Only on Impact Primetime. You wouldn't send a text while using a chainsaw. Check out these pics of this huge tree falling. You probably wouldn't text while scuba diving. And you definitely wouldn't send a text while making out. You are so smoking hot. I love your elbows. Wait, hold on a second. Huh? I need to send this. OMG, I'm like totally kissing him right now. Dude, what the f***? So why would you send a text while driving? Well, that's different. That's what about 6,000 people who died last year said. Oh. And now, it's illegal in Michigan to read, type, or send any text from your phone while driving. It's a $100 fine for the first offense and 200 bucks after that. Ouch. Check out Michigan House Bill 4394. Be a part of the solution and save a life. And seriously, put the phone away while you're making out. Aw, come back, cuddle bunny. You need help. 88.9 The Impact. Now back to Impact Exposure. Emmanuel Berry, and you are listening to Impact Exposure. The city of East Lansing has teamed up with the Board and Water Board and Water of Light once again this year for the fourth annual LED Holiday Light Exchange. Reporter Lindsay Benson talked with the Board and Water and Light Energy Program Specialist Aline Go about the program. This is a, a program that we offer uh, in, in November, right before Thanksgiving, at where our customers can, uh, el- residential electric customers, can come into one of three sites and exchange their old incandescent holiday lights for a new strand of LED light-emitting diode um, holiday strands of light. East Lansing's Department of Public Works Environmental Service Administrator, Catherine DeChambeau, has witnessed how successful this program has been. Absolutely. It has a good turnout. I think it's something that people look forward to, and um, it's it's kind of exciting to get two new strings of uh, mm-hmm. LED lights in exchange for your old lights. Eileen mm-hmm. explained how this is a part of the Hometown Energy Savers Program to encourage energy efficiency. Well, the main goal is to save energy, mm-hmm. and we've been running this for about four years now. And uh, 
and we want to encourage people to try the new technology, the LED technology, and they'll find that it's a safer, um, very nice bright light, and they'll last much, much longer than the old incandescent lights. Mm -hmm. And, and the, again, the main focus is to save energy. MSU Senior and Board of Water and Lights customer Marissa High appreciates what the City of East Lansing and the Board of Water and Lights are doing for energy efficiency. I think that's pretty cool that uh, the Lansing Board of Water and Lights doing that just because it's, it's nice to know that I'm like a, a customer, a company that actually cares and also that it's not like a monopolizing company either. They actually want people to like afford their electricity. People who want to exchange their lights can bring in a valid Michigan ID, a recent Board of Water and Lights bill, and an old strand of incandescent lights to either the Board of Water and Lights Customer Service Center, the East Lansing Department of Public Works, or the East Lansing Hannah Community Center to receive a new strand of LED holiday lights. The program will be running until November 30th or until supplies last. For Impact News, I'm Lindsay Benson. You're listening to Impact Exposure. First floor. Hey, what floor are you going to? <clears throat> oh, uh, three. Thanks. <coughs> hey, didn't we, uh, have... Yeah, that one class. Yeah, that's so funny to, <laughs> to see you, because I <coughs> thought maybe we could, uh... Would you ever want to, um... <coughs> I was wondering if you, if I could stick my finger in your eye. What? No. Oh, <clears throat> I just flushed some toilets and touched a doorknob. What? I've been keeping this moist Kleenex Ew, in my pocket. that's uh, so gross. I thought we could, you know, just stick my finger Ugh. in your eye. Is that weird? No! Don't touch me! What's wrong with you? Oh, sorry. Well, ever since you got in the elevator, you've been coughing all over your hands and pressing those buttons, so I just thought you were into that kind of thing. Free. Studies show that three-quarters of women and only half of men actually wash their hands in the bathroom. That's nasty. Stop the flu and other germs by regularly washing with soap and avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. More at cdc.gov slash clean hands. Impact 89 FM. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Prime where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. From 10 p.m. until midnight Sunday nights, listen to the Impact Afterglow, where you can hear a variety of relaxed tracks to help you ease into the start of a new week. Only on Impact Primetime. Prime now back to Impact Exposure. Impact Exposure, I'm Emmanuel Berry. Since 1982, the Spartan Discords have been entertaining Michigan State with the sweet sounds of a cappella. The male a cappella group's next task is entertaining students and alumni for their holiday concert this weekend. Abby Newton gives us a sneak preview. It's Sunday night and the College of Music seems to be vacant. The hallways are silent, except for the faint sound coming from room 120. That would be the beautiful melody of the Spartan Discords. All this week, you may be able to find this a cappella group of 14 male students singing the night away in preparation for their holiday concert, The Last Noel. Michael Finney believes it is an honor to be part of this group. Nothing, nothing beats singing on that stage in front of all those people. Just knowing that they're, they're there to, to hear us is such a huge honor. You know, I'm just, I'm just a lowly student at Michigan State, and so to have all these people come to listen to us is such a great, it's such a great feeling. And, you know, we always do our best to not let anybody down. The concert is not only about the music. Finney says the concert provides entertainment for the audience. It's 
part Christmas songs, you know, part just our normal rap. We'll have a lot of, you know, fun stories and jokes, and we'll have a lot of great music, a lot of good Christmas music to get you in the spirit for the season. So just expect to be entertained. In addition to entertainment, senior psychology student Zach Flood says the concert may provide you with some irony. Although it is a celebration of the holidays, it is also a last hurrah before the supposed end of the world in December. Well, it's called the last of all because obviously the impending doom coming on the world in the end of December. So it's kind of where we got the name. Uh, we do a Toys for Tots drive. Yeah, we're really excited. It's something we do every year. All the alumni love it. They all come back. And so, yeah, we're ready for another run, run at it. This weekend will be the last time Flood takes the stage with the Spartan Discords, the acapella group he has been a member of since coming to Michigan State. Yeah, it's definitely bittersweet. It's going to be really, I'm going to really miss it. I, I put, you know, it's my fifth semester in the group, so I'm really, uh, really going to miss singing with these guys. And uh, half the fun is all the preparation, all the time we spend together. So, yeah, it's going to be definitely hard to say goodbye to that. Spartan Discord's public relations director, Drew Peabody, is also a senior in the group. Peabody says he expects a lively crowd for his final concert. We sell out shows and we're pretty proud of it. Not to be cocky, because we, we, you know, we appreciate everyone that comes and we get new people that come every concert and, and people that have been to everyone for years. So I recommend getting your tickets as soon as you can. Now what should the audience expect? A fun time. That was Peabody again. We all agree. It's a lot of work this week. We're like, oh my God, so much to do. We're practicing every night. But it's the funnest thing that all of us, I can speak for all of us when we say it's the funnest thing I do in my life right now. And so we have a great time. I think we're really talented this semester. So great music. The Christmas concerts that I've been in in the past, they leave it saying this is just an awesome way to start like the Christmas season. For tickets and more information on the Last Noel concert, you can visit the Spartan Discord website, www.spartandiscords.com. Reporting for Impact, I'm Abby Newton. Impact Exposure, Emmanuel Berry here, uh, Spartan Discords there, uh, Abby Newton reporting. Uh, thank you so much for tuning into Exposure tonight. Next week, it is our last episode of Sexposure for the semester. Uh, tune in to hear a panel from Olin Health uh, Center as well as uh, other guests we invite to talk about sex and relationships. That goes on from 7 to 8 p.m. next Tuesday night. Once again, that's the last one of the semester, uh, so... Uh, it's your last chance to talk about sex on the radio with us anyway. Um, and to take us out tonight, we have another track from the Spartan Discords. Uh, here it is on Impact Exposure. Thanks for tuning in. It's Christmas and we walk With no one to miss us On our own Out in the cold Trudging onward Braving a harsh winter storm You and I met passing by And now our spirit Christmas with you I'll spend my 
from the campus of Michigan State University. You've been listening to Impact Exposure. 